opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Good morning. You're listening to Ask a Leader, and I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the Thanksgiving edition 2012 of Ask a Leader. Let me take this moment to thank every one of you for supporting Radio KUCI during our fund drive the last couple of week and a half. We raised about 6500 bucks, a bit short of our goal. If you forgot to give us a call, we'll gladly accept your donation on the web. We delight in bringing you what you want to hear and love it all the more when you tell us through your financial contributions you love us back. Really, really, I mean that genuinely and earnestly, folks, since earnest, we have strong earnest factors on this show. So uh, today on Ask a Leader, we'll be working the Thanksgiving theme a little bit differently. Patty Wood will give us some practical advice about accurately reading body language as she talks about her work and her book, Snap, Making the Most of First Impressions, Body Language and Charisma. Among other settings, we'll apply her findings toward everyone's conduct around the Thanksgiving table, as well as the larger and possibly more treacherous holiday circuit. My second guest will be Dr. Thuy Vodang, Project Director for the Vietnamese American Oral History Project here at UCI's Department of Asian American Studies, the official website of which was launched last month. We'll find out who's participating in the special project to collect narratives while the opportunity is here and near. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us today um, with the annual tribal ritual that is Thanksgiving. Uh, just, it's just around the corner. My first guest comes to us just in time to make the most of it or to be the most with what we bring to the table. Patty Wood has done the research and has consulted with many a client on first impressions, uh, body language, and nonverbal communication. From facial expressions to the way in which we plant our feet, we give off a great deal of what is on our minds. Patty will lead us today. Patty Wood, welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you so much for having me. We are glad that we can take it now away from, I know you were dealing with some other electoral candidate themes. We'll take that at a later, later, later interview. But now at the cusp of all the holiday uh, traditions and rituals and gatherings, I wanted to really zero in on that for everybody's benefit today. First, Patty, this this interpretation of body language is a two-way street, as you talk about. When we give off a tremendous amount of data, wittingly or unwittingly, and we surely are interpreting 
perhaps more subconsciously than consciously what others are telling us. Exactly. So exactly. I'm amazed in uh, your book, Snap, Making the Most of First Impressions, Body Language, and Charisma, of how you've quantified how quickly we're affected by nonverbal communication. Like you talk about the non-sexual touch changing how we feel in one fortieth of a second. You talk about um, how we our body begins to chemically influence us similarly rapidly in one fortieth of a second and uh, so on. Tell us, how, how are you able to get to this, this essence? Well, it's fascinating. This is my field. All my degrees are in nonverbal communication, and I taught at the university level for many years, and I've been researching and consulting on it for many years. And the research that I found the most compelling in my years of study has been on first impressions because we can process so much information, up to 10,000 cues, in just an interaction with one other person we can exchange in less than a minute. Yes. So you're doing so much of that with... Um, the limbic brain, what some people call the primitive brain, what sometimes they say lightly is that, that right hemisphere or emotional part of the brain. And so you're not necessarily consciously aware of it. So it's very, very, I say, honest, yes. <laughs> because it's not affected by things like stereotypes, for example, and first impressions. Right. And, I, you know, I was thinking of this, your, um, while reading your book, I was thinking of what David Brooks says in The Social Animal, that, you know, there's a whole lot that's sort of, it's already set up. We're, it's, we're not even actively uh, processing all this. It is so subliminal. It's so primal. It is. And, and actually, our basic instinct for survival has set this ideal of first impression. We're Correct. genetically predisposed to form accurate first impressions, accurate 80% or higher, depending on the research, because the ancestors that weren't able to do that did not survive. Right, <laughs> so, right, right. When people say, oh, I don't like to form first impressions, say, absolutely, you don't want to form stereotypes. But that visceral impression, I like this person, I don't like this person, I can trust this person, I can't trust this person, that's necessary. So before anyone gets to the holiday dinner table, and obviously there's lots and lots of business uh, workplace references, but the, uh, the, the idea that an expression of a smile go to in the, the cave uh, social pattern of um, the smile simply saying, you're safe with me. Exactly. It can be recognized from 300 feet away. Yes, I, and I... most literature says it's the, the most primal instinct for and that shows friendliness and their likability or safety. So way from out of the cave, way beyond the cave's entrance, you can see that person presenting that. Right. From a football field away, you can say, okay, this person, I don't know them. From They're, they're not from my tribe, but I, uh, they're friendly. Because oh, if they, they were grimacing, if there was those folds um, between the eyebrows, those, those furrowed wrinkles, um, then we would know that the possibility they were attacking. And when the eyebrows go up in what I call an eyebrow flash, which actually happens about 15 feet away when we see friends and family, right. that's a recognition, oh, I like what I see, and I want more of it, and I'm going to be friendly. And you talk about, you break down this, these sort of the, 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 the fanning upward, that the, the genuine, the authentic smile is uh, perceptible, maybe subconsciously to us, when we can see that the entire face, it starts up, starts around the, the mouth, mu- muscular the mouth muscles all the way up where the eyebrows arc and uh, show real receptivity. Exactly. Oh, I'm so glad you, that you read that part of the book because I'm fascinated by smiles and have done a lot of research in that area. And the upper part of the face, um, from about mid-nose up, is under less conscious control. We can more easily manipulate the bottom part of the face. Oh. Um, 
And so around the eyes, there's little pockets that appear when you're giving a sincere, real smile, and the little lines that, that everybody talks about but actually indicate that that's a true smile. So that upward um, motion of the eyebrows, all of that uh, is less influenced by our conscious attention. And I like the way you say manipulate when you're talking about the lower muscles, where we can orchestrate, we think, an emotion, but it's manipulated. It's not nearly as genuine as the full-on features. When we see somebody doing that fake smile, we we might even recognize the fact that sometimes when it's faked, it's, it's held a moment too long because, for example, typically a real smile comes on the face. I see like a wave. It, it's, there's movement there. Mm. So it's beautiful, and we, we feel good in its presence, where a fake smile actually makes our limbic brain respond, something's not right, something's not right. And what's actually happening typically is that the hemispheres of the brain, that, that upper body, upper part of the face and lower, aren't agreeing. So we're like, what's that? there's dissonance here. I don't, what's she really thinking? What's she really feeling? Right. And so um, I found it fascinating, too, how you you break down um, the handshake. Mm. And we're talking about, first, I'll introduce this topic with the timing. You say that a handshake can uh, take care, can handle what would have been three hours of, of interaction. Mm-hmm. And a handshake is equal to up to three hours of continuous face-to-face interaction and its ability to establish rapport and make you feel safe and comfortable. So in actuality, if you don't shake hands, the research says it takes you up to three hours longer to feel comfortable with somebody. So you really miss out if you don't shake hands. And I think that's relevant in so many ways. One, because a lot of people are resisting. They don't want to shake hands because they're afraid of germs. And also because we're interacting so much over the phone or through emails or text. And so through technology, we're not necessarily getting that same safety and comfort and rapport at the beginning. So there's more misunderstanding or it takes longer to feel comfortable. And you talk about, I mean, I'm despairing in your projecting that it's a vanishing gesture. And you talk about, I guess, a sort of a is it Generation X or Double X, XY that uh, yes, we're seeing? I would seeing say it- a little about 32 to f- and below right now that they're resisting the handshake. They might be doing the bump, uh, that, that high fist bump. They might be um, doing other kinds of greetings. In fact, I speak to mostly the corporations, but every year I go around the country, I try to speak on college campuses as well so I can figure out and predict what's going to be happening in, in the world in the next few years. And I'm finding that, that college kids are, are hugging more or they're resisting physical contact. Well, I, I want to break that one down too. Is, uh, but but first, back to the handshake that the uh, you're you're considering whether there's a sort of a germophobia, and you mentioned well, we can co- there are so many other places we can collect germs, and we're not thinking yes. about that. So why would yes. we cut off that social connection because we uh, of a fear that's perhaps overplayed? And I think you know that's m- m- the commercials on television that, that oh germs are a terrible awful thing. Um, and certainly, I mean, I've worked with the American Dermatological Association. We've talked about the germs possible, but they're everywhere. And you can't form a close and intimate relationship with a piece of paper or a doorknob where there's germs, but you can with people. So um, I recommend, because it's the tactile aspect, the actual physical touch that has the most dramatic influence on us feeling safe and comfortable because it, there's a chemical exchange that occurs when we, when we yes. receive safe touch. So you're missing out on that, and it's actually necessary. It's, it's physiologically necessary for us to have safe touch in our interactions. 
Well, for those of you who've just joined us, lucky you, we're talking to Patty Wood, an expert on interpreting the subliminal and subconscious and conscious sorts of uh, body language we're giving off today on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine on this lead up to Thanksgiving. We're breaking down the handshake and breaking down the handshake. You and your book talk about the many kinds, and I'm, I'm, uh, I certainly want people to have a chance to look at their own private copy of Snap, Making the Most of First Impressions, Body Language, and Charisma. I don't mind shilling this book one bit, Patty. Uh, and <laughs> so, so uh, that the, the handshake, though, you break down and there's uh, different uh, expressions through the handshake that I'm glad you said it's, it is a, a physical, a chemical necessity to do this and we're losing out when we're uh, paring it down. But there are, there are, can you give us some different expressions of a handshake that you talk about in your book? Uh, well, one of the things I think is really interesting is, is that you ideally want to end with what I call an equal handshake, and that's both thumbs up. So your thumb is up and the other person's hand is up. So subtly, sometimes people manipulate or change that. And, oh, yes. Um, so, for example, somebody might offer their hand with their palm down, so they're on top in the handshake. Wow. And, yes, they're saying, yes. my power is important to me. Or they might take... Um, their outside hand, in this case, in a handshake, that's the left hand, and they might clasp the outside of your hand as they shake hands. So it's a two-handed handshake. Which is a kind and, of a clerical handshake, too. Yeah, oh, I, interesting, because I find, because I do a lot of work in hospital settings, how to read the body language of your patients, um, doctors and sometimes come in, especially I've noticed, interestingly enough, surgeons, when they do shake hands, they'll come underneath. So you might see the minister of your church or a caregiver really? come underneath with that outside hand. So they're shaking hands with you with one hand, and, and their other hand is supporting your hand shaking hand underneath to say, hey, I can hold you up in this setting. Wow. Um, I was speaking to... Um, international bankers and investors last week in Miami. It was fascinating how they would do that to say, you can trust me, you can, you can trust me, you can invest with me, and it will feel safe and comfortable for you. So this, we're going to go back to Thanksgiving now. So this, or let's say a holiday party, but this is a, folks, this is your opportunity. You are at the threshold of an encounter, and Ms. Pettywood is here to say what you're telegraphing with palm down. This is going to be a bit of an alpha exercise. Be aware that you're doing it, or be aware that it's being done to you. And you talk, Patty, about how to sort of nudge that sort of alpha gesture into a more of a, um, a peer gesture. Absolutely. And it's always a choice. Sometimes you want to give that person their power and say, oh, okay, I know what's going to come, be coming next. But if you are going into, say, an interview or a negotiation or perhaps in a handshake with your in-laws and you want them to That's know it. Hamstrong too, That's the one I'm looking then at. you can, in a way that would seem very natural to them, that w- wouldn't seem un- um, not an ordinary anyway, you can take your right foot, that's your hand shaking foot, it's the foot that moves forward when you shake hands, and you can shift your weight over that right foot and take their hand that's on top and gently lift it up so you're in that great handshake with both thumbs up. So you're basically manipulating them from being on top to saying, no, no, we're equals. And because you're shifting over the right foot, you can do it in a very smooth motion and it's not noticeable. And that can set a tone for uh, a better encounter around Absolutely. that table, which is fraught with landmines. So that's that's I'm trying to help everybody out here. We all we all could use it. There's so much pre-existing uh, information and this kind of a thing, and that, that might be helpful. And then, and then you talk about the, well, um, the, the really the 
the uh, squeezing one. I'm trying to think of that tight the bone fist, crusher handshake. The bone crusher, right? Yes. And uh, one of the things I think it, 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 when I speak about this to my audiences, they're always, they always laugh. But the research says that the majority of people that give bone crushing handshakes, if they initiate with that bone crushing handshake, the research says in actuality they have low self esteem and they're compensating right. for that by starting the interaction with a bone crusher. But you can deal with that. You can let them have their power or again if you feel like no, I don't want them to think they have the upper hand. You can take that outside hand, which because you're, the hand is being crushed. You, there's nothing you can do with that one. But you can take your outside hand, and you can encompass, do what I call a glove handshake, and take that your outside hand and encompass the bone-crushing hand, sending a symbolic message to the bone crusher, hey, baby, you're surrounded, loosen up. Okay, uh, that would that that might work, and and I'm sort of, I mean, I really like the hearty handshake. I love it, and I want to ask you um, about, about your uh, encounter. But the um, but the bone crushers can practically be debilitating, though. It, it's it, not hearty. It's just sort of it's it's severe, and I almost feel maimed when it's finished. And it's interesting because at some level, the person that consistently gives that—that's mm. their their habit is getting something from feeling like they have the upper hand at the beginning of that interaction. So that in itself, if you get one, gives you an enormous amount of information about what's important to that person. So I don't want to discount the fact that you're constantly getting information from how people approach or, in some cases, don't approach or don't offer their hand. Right. Well, you know, this this begs my question as I was preparing for this. Can you, Patty, would tell us, do you remember who taught you how to shake a hand? Oh. Yes, um, I was very, very blessed. Um, we, I have two sisters. There's no sons in the family. My father was a full bird colonel in the Air Force. He was a ah. fighter pilot in the World War II and a war advisor at the Pentagon. And so he had daughters, no sons, so he taught us all how to shake hands. And he was very specific and okay. really emphasized the fact that it was critical for us male or female, you know, it was critical for us to know how to shake hands, to initiate, to be confident in it, and ideally, because it's North America, to give a firm handshake. Right, right. I remember, um, I think, uh, just not to be, it's not about me, folks, I don't ever confuse this sort of function here on the radio show, but I have to give credit, though, it was an orientation I had as an exchange student, and it was Denmark, where I was going to be living for one complete year, and they made a point of telling us, this is how it's going to work this year, guys, and and so that that handshake of a few uh, with some other kinds of salutary kinds of uh, rites of passage and gestures that they taught us. But I remember that's when we learned. But I want to now back in now we're not going to overdo the handshake, but the handshake it's such a dynamic part of greeting right now as you talk about, and as I I feel like it's almost a, a pure anarchy. But when we we do the fist bump, I, I I get that that's cool and all that kind of thing, but I don't think does it, Patty, give that enough connection though, like. The handshake well, does. It's, it's fascinating because the symbolism in body language is highly symbolic, is so powerful. Because, um, for example, when you raise up your arms above what I call the headline, typically it means joy, euphoria, or victory. So you have these hands raised up. Think about young people, think about um, President Obama when he was running for the presidency the first time and how he would do the fist high fist bump with Mrs. Obama. Right. And so you've got that high raised, we are going to be victorious. But you also have the fist, which is a symbolic weapon and indicates war or battle. So it's symbolizing we're going to fight together and we're going to win and be victorious over that. So you have a whole generation that's greeting, feeling like they're going to be victorious, but they have to do battle at, at, with every interaction. It's an effort. It's a battle. 
That's fascinating. It's fascinating. Well, what do you think? I didn't. I searched and I didn't see the whole um, the whole aspect of the handshake that I I like to try in special settings where I'm. Let's say I'm crossing. Uh, I'm a Caucasian a female. I'm crossing a sort of ethnic divide mm. at the line. I like that step progression of the handshake with the traditional shake and then the thumb grasp and then the, the uh, there's that sort of you slide into the, it's a kind of I, I learned it uh, uh, in African-American culture and I learned it in South Africa I've worked on it there for when wow. I was living there but I don't but I always find that it's more receptive re, uh, well received than it is off-putting from what from what I can tell from and the feedback what, I get what you're experiencing is this beautiful aspect of these secret handshakes to say okay hey, that's it you did you're say part that. of my tribe We're, we have this small tribe that only a few of us are in it so wow isn't that great to find a fellow member here so um, I ended up having a, so much information because I'm fascinated by the process about handshakes and greeting ritual um, that I added it to the website that goes along with the book and so there's examples of all these different kinds of handshakes and it just makes you feel closer to that particular person we have this in common and um, we're going to mention that that is on the web the, the website you'll find on the web at snapfirstimpressions.com and there you will find out by about the dangerous handshakes. She does not mention in her book, so you go to that website, folks, for that. But so we're back to the holiday theme, though. And um, you talk about, I mean, we talk about from the eyes to the feet. The um, that there was one interesting foot placement that you called the cowboy defensive stance. And man, I remember that from way back in my. Uh, in other settings, I'm thinking this is a small, it's a short guy complex. They always walk it, stand in that um, that cowboy stance. It's interesting, and you can even tell when somebody's about a man specifically because it's men, men do it. It's about to do you stand with your feet broadly apart. A guy goes into almost that lock and load position, and the hands might go to the hips or even have the elbows go out all, all, all the way. And what what um, you're doing is you're making your body bigger because. You're going, trying to say, "Hey, I'm intimidating. I'm about to fight with you." But I see and right you through it, Patty. Scared right now. Yeah, it just seems it just seems so transparently compensatory, though. That's the thing. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's a natural again, your primitive brain, um, and it's one of the reasons the feet are such an honest portion of the body, if, and I believe the most honest portion of the body, because they're the first part of your body that respond to a stressful situation. So you okay. sort of fight flight. It's actually a bit more complex. So you might see freeze in place or fight or flight. Um, so the body wants to get bigger to say, ah, I'm fierce. Uh, and strangely enough, some people respond to those scary situations or an argument by getting smaller. So the feet come closer together. And in terms of gender-based differences, some women will do that. They'll right. get smaller. And I actually recommend, hmm, be aware of that. You might not want to get smaller. You might want to say, no, I'm going to stand to my ground. Stand your ground. Don't cross the feet either. Mm, it's interesting. We have lower levels of cognition when our feet are crossed. We it, we have higher levels of cognition when both feet are firmly planted on the ground. Well, it makes sense. You're so you're so tightly wrapped up. You can't mm-hmm. open and yet up that's yourself. A female normal way of, of sitting. It's it's the gender affects what's appropriate and polite to do. Well, I want to then move into um, now when, uh, the aspect of hugs. Mm-hmm. And they are welcome. They are not welcome. And I really want to make sure we have a chance to tell listeners, uh, Patty Wood, who's talking about her book, Snap, Making the Most of First Impressions, Body Language, and Charisma, about uh, 
uh, when we are not interested in that hug, I mean, you, if you ever want a hug, you can always get one. But let's let's give the listeners an upper hand, an upper hug, in <laughs> how that. they have well, uh, think they about, can think, thwart I have an, what I um, call uh, body windows. Um, yes, there's parts of the body. There's one at the toes. Um, there's another at the knees. There's another at the pelvis. What I personally call the cheesecake, um, the heart the palms of the hands, the throat, the mouth, the eyes. And if you think about the front of your body being all these multiple windows, when you're comfortable, you keep your windows open. But say, for example, um, Uncle the Bert table, is right. coming to give you a big old hug, and you don't like Uncle Bert, and you don't want, you're not a huggy person, and you don't want to do it, what you would naturally do, or you can consciously do so you can avoid that hug, is start to close down the windows of your body. So that's avoid eye contact or turn your head away, turn your, put your head down to close the neck window. Most obviously is to hide the palms of your hands or orient your heart face away or close over with your arms to indicate you don't want the hug. And strongly with your feet, pointing your feet away from your uncle. So that indicates to his limbic brain, she doesn't want to hug. She's She's put up a barrier. Or you talk about gently sort of um, moving uh, placing your right side, I'm doing this to the mic. This, this mic isn't helping the reading. <laughs> I'm uh, d- uh, pre- presenting your presenting right shoulder side, your side right, so that the, than it, the front with it, all those windows on it. So just going to the side, turning your body, so orienting instead of face to face, so that your side um, is presented. So that there's that the very most they can just kind of lean into the, your right shoulder. And it's interesting that the old beginnings, the origin of the handshake was to put out the right hand so if you chose to, you could orient and protect the whole front of your body. Right. I see. Right. And so, and folks, the the reason for this isn't that we're trying to thwart the hug and we're trying to sort of keep everybody on a on an even keel in this holiday gathering, and we're, uh, we want to remain genuine, and we genuinely don't want the hug. We, we don't want to be victim of a, an unwelcome hug. So that's and it, and it's my also motivation. it's helpful just to know, because if you're a hugger and you open up and stretch out your arms, if you see somebody that's closing down those windows, Read it. say, oh, yeah, they don't want that. So it's easy to, actually, I'm a hugger, so it gives me the opportunity to say, okay, I want to hug this. Oh, yeah, he does. Great, wonderful. She does. Terrific. Well, besides those body windows, you talk about your the breath and pacing, and that can be applied at the Thanksgiving table. And um, you talk about, um, then we can get a, this aspect in about the zones, the intimate mm-hmm. zone, zero to 18 inches mm-hmm. is your intimate zone. So people think of this in terms of the Thanksgiving table or a holiday party or a, some something akin to that. The social zone, you say, is two to four feet and this is a this is a Western thing. We'll, uh, we can I'm, it's it's all adjustable with uh, other cultural uh, overlays. The professional zone is four to seven feet, and the public is even a broader zone. So we can get what we need done in that holiday party or mixer with the within the four to seven feet, and watch for cues that uh, maybe. Uh, I guess, in what the eyes are doing, what the um, body windows are expressing and opening and closing, whether we move closer to the social and in the inner social. And it's fascinating. Even small changes in those zones can affect. So some people think, oh, the the family, the tumultuous things that happen at Thanksgiving. Well, one of the things that can affect that is normally a place setting, like a placemat with the silverware and the napkin and the glasses, give you 
the boundaries beyond that intimate zone. So you get that body bubble around you. But sometimes when you do Thanksgiving, you're closer together. So if there's emotion or conflict, it's more likely to come out. So small things like that at a dinner table are who's placed across from the other person. So because men, when they're sitting across from other men, just naturally become a little bit competitive or they shut down. So it affects the conversation at the Thanksgiving table. And how, and how. Well, um, so I'm one thing that I was thinking about while reading your rich material is, <laughs> it's a, a personal insight, is knowing what you know about your subject, are your antenna on overdrive, Patty Wood? <laughs> I get asked that question. Um, oh, and sorry. I, it's interesting. My friends and family call them superpowers, but in tr- my belief is that everybody reads nonverbal communication. It's just a matter of, with this, information in, the, in this book and in body language in general, you can bring it to your conscious level of awareness. So what I find personally is that I rev those powers down when everybody's happy and, and, and in good moods. But if I feel that somebody's upset or sad, I kind of rev up my superpowers. So for example, if I'm sitting next to somebody on a plane and everything's good and wonderful, but if they're upset in any way about anything that's going on in their lives, I, I become the therapist, the counselor, because I can read and pick up on those cues. So I do think when you um, are able to see into the hearts of people, which I think reading body language and other nonverbal communication allows you to do, it's, it's, an, it's a wonderful gift to be able to, to, to see that. And it's a responsibility, too, because when you know how other people feel, you have a responsibility to help them. And that, that is you in the gift and the uh, prof- hyper-professional um, uh, you know, background. But uh, for those of us uh, who are uh, slogging through here, in your book, you talk about mimicry and mirroring, which is, uh, I think I'll just direct people to uh, the book and you can read more about how powerful mimicry and, and mirroring is to sort of match the other person's mood and demeanor so that uh, both of you get through that encounter in a way that's uh, it's gratifying it's, uh, you know, genuine and all that kind of thing. I, we can't, unfortunately, we don't have much uh, time to go into that, but I do want to suggest that folks uh, refer to your book about that. Well, the uh, conclusion, I I was hoping I could just have a, 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 a sample of that, but I'll try to do my best, is snap endings where I would say to my guest on my show on Ask a Leader, I would say, Patty Wood, I'm really glad that you could be on this show this morning and I hope that your Thanksgiving is as good as it can be and mm-hmm. I, I wish you well. Thank so you that's so a snap much. that's a snap ending folks that I'm trying <laughs> to work at. I hope it's consistent with what, how I generally treat my guests but you can give us some pointers on those snap finishes that are so important because endings and beginnings both matter. And it's interesting. There's a primacy effect, our first impression, and also a recency effect. So the last thing you say or do has a really profound effect, especially on your personal credibility, according to the research. So if you think an encounter didn't go well, linger. Spend time with a goodbye. Don't just rush. That's our actual our common tendency in a phone call or a face-to-face is to rush to the close or avoid saying goodbye. Uh, so mm. I, I would suggest that in any interaction, you linger over the goodbye, that you make sure that the person knows that they matter, 
and shake hands or use some other kind of closing ritual with that person so they feel significant and heard and understood. So for the hostess, for the so, guest, yeah. for the, uh, let's say, the party, uh, the uh, manager, or the, the top in the hierarchy, or the uh, the grateful employee, this snap ending is something to consider if you really want to make the most of that opportunity, that Absolutely. occasion. Absolutely. Profoundly affects impressions, by the way, and it's a, a beautiful ritual to get up out of your chair and say goodbye to somebody. Well, that's fine. Well, I know, Patty, you have, you're calling this in from the East Coast. I hope that you have then a lovely Thanksgiving. In which city are you going to be? I'm going to be in both Atlanta, Georgia and Athens, Georgia. Oh, that is, oh, I know those places. That'll, that'll be a very fine setting for Thanksgiving. Well, I thank you for telling us about all the rich work you've done. And I look forward to another time where we can bring up in a topical way, whether it's a, a political body language situation or, a, a, let's say, a development that occurs, we'll, you know, whether it's uh, the, the, the brass, how the brass has been uh, providing us with titillating information about how, and how encounters can go. We'll, we'll take up some other topical things, if you'll be so kind, at oh, a later date, Patty. Oh, I love to. Well, here's to your Thanksgiving. Thank you for joining us today. Take care. Thank you. You too. Well, we are going to be back in just a jiff with my second guest that is going to be with Thuy Vodang, and she is the director of the Vietnamese American Oral History Project, the Department of Asian Studies at UC Irvine. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us. We are back with Ask a Leader, and it's my pleasure to have on my next guest, Dr. Thuy Vodang, who is the project director for the Vietnamese American Oral History Project in the Department of Asian American Studies here at UC Irvine. She earned her Ph.D. in Ethnic Studies from UC California, University of California, San Diego, and was a fellow at the Institute of American Cultures Asian American Studies Center at University of California, that's UCLA, and a visiting scholar uh, there. Uh, her research and teaching specializations include comparative race and ethnic relations, immigration, ethnography, community studies, and oral history. Her first research with oral histories are those she conducted interviews with the first-generation Vietnamese Americans in San Diego for her doctoral dissertation on cultural politics and memory. She's collaborated on a Pacific Rim Foundation-funded project, and her academic works appear all over, in, including Amer- Amerasia Journal and the Le Vietnam au Féminin and the Journal of Vietnamese Studies. She's currently facilitating and co-hosting a weekly Vietnamese language radio show called Oral History, Stories Between the Generations on V, like Vietnam, VNCR. It's on the FM dial at 106.3. The oral uh, Vietnamese American Oral History Project at UCI assembles and preserves and disseminates the life 
narratives of Vietnamese Americans in Southern California with the goal of bridging the special gap between academia and community. She comes to us today right around the corner on the campus here at Nervine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Thuy Vodang. Good morning, Claudia, and thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, it's just in time because we know that you had the opening for the project. Uh, you launched it on the campus, uh, or at, I'm sorry, in Westminster last month. But now for this particular project started a year ago, you, Professor Linda Vo, and others um, went over uh, to the Center for Oral and Public History at Cal State Fullerton investigating uh, their methods and their means for establishing your Vietnamese American Oral History Project. This is the time and the place for such a heady archive to be undertaken, isn't it, Tui? That's absolutely right. As you know, it's been uh, 37 years since the fall of Saigon, the end of the Vietnam. 37? Count those folks. Uh, excuse me? No, I was just saying, 37 <laughs> years already. Yeah, yeah, 37 years. So uh, for, for a long time now, those in the community and academics have wanted to build such an archive. Um, and as you know, after 37 years, a lot of the memories are being lost as that generation that can remember the war and can remember the refugee experience are passing on. So it's quite a timely and urgent matter what we're doing here with uh, assembling this oral history archive. Well, I'm sure everyone wants to know, because we, we many, Caucasian or otherwise, we have many, many uh, Vietnamese, American-Vietnamese uh, connections and associations, and so we're probably thinking, ha, ah, are they eligible? Who is eligible to offer their narrative to we? Well, the criteria for participation is uh, you have to be Vietnamese-American, and that can include ethnic Chinese from Vietnam, so it's refugees or immigrants, um, it doesn't matter what generation you identify with or belong to, uh, you, but you must be over at least 30 years old and a resident of Southern California, so that includes Los Angeles, San Diego, um, the Inland Empire, and Orange Counties. Okay, so there you are, folks. You have it. And um, the range, and what are the languages that are, um, that are taking the narratives in? Primarily, I, uh, my students, who are also interviewers for the project, are interviewing in English. I interview in Vietnamese, and a handful of students have also interviewed in uh, Chinese, different dialects. So I, I was hoping to give maybe a sample on the, this radio program, but uh, the ones that are available on your uh, VNCR uh, program podcast, they're, they're all in Vietnamese, so we don't get a chance. But there, there are ways that we will be able to access this. But access... That's a very key thing in this carefully uh, constructed research study. It's about um, allowing each of your uh, narratives, your the ones providing their stories, um, the terms that they may put into collecting their story because of so many issues. Can you talk about that protection you're offering? Sure. Uh, the, as you know, the archive is available online. At our our handle is um, vaohp.lib.uci.edu, and that site is hosted through Univer- uh, UC Irvine Library's Southeast Asian Archive. And so the site is publicly accessible by anyone, anywhere. And so the goal of the um, project is really to not only preserve these stories for the long term, but we wanted to be sure to turn these stories around um, and have them be used and heard. Um, for scholarship, um, for the community. So we wanted these stories to be widely accessible for K-12 educators, for other researchers, for artists, 
novelists, storytellers, so that they might have a second life after that. Um, and of course, building such a public archive requires that we be very mindful of the ways in which we go about collecting the stories and ensuring that certain private information is protected, like people's personal identifiable information, like their home addresses and so on. Of course, that's not public record. So um, in conducting the interviews, the narrator, we, we call them the narrator rather than the subject, because that term really kind of um, shows that they're much more empowered to, yes. to tell their stories in their own words. Um, they're fully aware of where the, their stories will go, but they do have the option to restrict access to restrict public access should they, you know, um, talk, discuss things that are too sensitive to talk about now um, or they're part of a vulnerable uh, subject population. So there are ways that those folks can also participate and share their stories now while the project is running and preserve those stories and then have a date for future release of that data. So um, a technical point then, the distinction between, um, the, you know, the the narrator or the uh, subject is there is there a special word that uh, in Vietnamese when you're approaching and recruiting these prospective uh, narrators? Yeah, so in Vietnamese, um, I use the term người kể chuyện, which basically means person who tells the story. <laughs> to ah. translate it directly, um, so that would be the closest uh, synonym to to narrator. I can think of in Vietnamese. And so that that may be one way you've you've made. Uh, created more receptivity in um, approaching them to be a participant in this project. Certainly. And we are, um, you know, the translation process is also kind of tricky. So when we talk about things like institutional review board or research approval, it doesn't quite translate very well into Vietnamese. It becomes very intimidating for a lot of folks in the community. And so I didn't want that, all the consent forms and legal documents that folks have to sign to be a deterrent for them in participating so, you know, we really have to, that's one of the reasons why I did, I do the Vietnamese um, language radio show, is to demystify that process. And they're listening? I mean, have a lot of people heard the show by the time you've approached them? Yeah, actually, it's getting quite a bit of airtime, and um, it airs weekly, but it gets reruns, and sometimes it airs in the mornings. Um, and what I'm finding is folks who contact me through the radio program, they're calling, there's a phone number that I give out, and they typically call me rather than email uh-huh. And these are helping me to also um, connect to different other opportunities in the community, like, for instance, senior apartments, um, where a large population or increasing population of older Vietnamese Americans are now living um, as one place to explore um, you know, storytelling and, and gathering narrative. Well, we're, we're, while we're talking about, um, well, let's, let's first, before we talk about what makes a great uh, collector of these stories, um, you are now... Uh, there are certain classes that p- perhaps feel sort of more inclined to contribute. You're, you're having a little bit of a, of a project in trying to appeal to anyone of any class from any calling uh, to come forward and p- offer their story. Yes, absolutely. One of the issues that has come up for me is that um, usually folks who are empowered already because of prior experience, education, or class privilege are those with already with a voice in the community. They've already, you know, um, published memo- self-published memoirs of themselves. They've, oh. You know, they're in Little Saigon, um, Orange County, California here, we have a very thriving ethnic publishing industry. So lots of people are going out there and publishing their stories, but it's only circulating among the community. It's not getting out there as far and wide. So 
that's where I see the intervention, too, with the, the Vietnamese American Oral History Project, is to get these stories out to a mainstream community so that the Vietnamese American stories aren't just being shared in group. Um, but the, the class issue is very real in terms of the folks who feel like they have something to say and want to contribute are usually folks, you know, they tend to be more the stereotype or the caricature that I would give is that they tend to be male, um, more educated. Uh, they would be considered the elites. Household heads. Yeah, yeah, the public uh, voices of the family. So um, it has been a challenge to recruit narrators who are women or who are, you know, I hate to use the term just ordinary or average um, Vietnamese Americans, but that's really how they feel, too, is that they don't have anything special to, to tell. So a lot of the work actually comes in before the interview. It's coaxing people to share, um, so trying to show them the intrinsic value in talking about their ordinary lives, their daily struggles in raising families, how they persevered after immigration. Right? And I'm sure that must be a remarkable part of the interview where they, they ease into that a feeling of there's real value in their story. It's not it's not a commonplace, uh, generic something, and it's it's enriching both for them to uh, provide uh, engage their the uh, interview and and then for the 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 one taking the story that re- they're probably having also a kind of a a, a revelatory moment with uh, where where that there must be like a step that a movement into something. Where, well, this is significant. This is this is a very meaningful endeavor. Yes, for me, my, I, I have done quite a few interviews, and there's always that moment when I feel, you know, the it's this contradictory feeling of um, privilege, you know, the privilege to hear these intimate stories, and then also the overwhelming sense of burden. Um, what to do with these stories? How to protect them? How to yes you know, best share them with the world. So it's, you know, as the interviewer and as someone who's managing um, the archive, it's quite a challenge to really straddle that, that tension, if you want to call it that. It's a journalist uh, tension, I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, that witnessing and protecting uh, are maybe two separate different functions there. But um, I wanted to let all my new uh, just joined guests, listeners, uh, my guest in, in this part of Ask a Leader is Thuy Vaudang, director of the Vietnamese American Oral History Project, as we head into the immigrant holiday special known as Thanksgiving here today on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, when we're talking about the special qualities of the, the narrators, there's also special people that are taking those stories. You've talked about your experience, but you're also, you have a class that you're teaching this fall where you're training students right now to take part in this. What's made um, those students uh, most capable in doing this job the way you want it done? You know, I think uh, every every student is quite different. And uh-huh. I've had the privilege of teaching, this is my second class, of students that I'm teaching to conduct oral histories for the Vietnamese American Oral History Project. And I'm finding that some of the the really kind of outstanding interviews um, are those who find um, a personal connection. And they don't have to be linked. uh, They don't have to be a relative of their narrator or, you know, their son or daughter or so on. But when they're able to see um, a piece of their own history or something parallel to it Mm -hmm. reflected in the stories that they collect, their investment just amplifies. And this shows up in the work that they do in terms of the meticulous labor they put into transcribing or translating. 
and um, the care with which they describe, you know, they, they have to catalog the oral history interview and make it ready to put into the archive. And um, today we have 80 interviews. These are full one- to two-hour interviews at least, and they have full transcripts and translations and um, documents that accompany them. Narrators have generously donated um, old photographs of oh. their families. So it's quite, it's quite a rich collection um, at this point, you know, one year into the project. One year. And that uh, begs the next question. How long do you envision that this project will last, continue? Well, initially, per funding, we were expecting this to be a three-year project. Um, but it's looking like it could could certainly go beyond that, and I'm I'm a little tentative about putting a, a solid number on it. Okay, because I really do want this to just keep going. Yes, indeed, that would be the point. <laughs> yeah. So as long as funding continues, and I imagine that uh, there's nothing uh, nothing brings success like success, and as uh, the community around Orange County and around the three the Southern California counties, uh, more than three that. Um, can uh, see an institution growing and building here that perhaps your financial support will expand and you will you will have an open-ended kind of a project here on your hands. I certainly hope so. And that maybe other campuses, you know, set up something uh, respectively and everybody is, uh, you know, humming right along with collecting. Because the, the, once, uh, once these people aren't with us any longer, it's, it's a huge loss of... of of taking stock and that kind of thing, and I, I now you you at Cal State Fullerton there was um, there was another group that has already uh, I'm trying to remember the ethnicity of the uh, group that had really worked out uh, some of this kind of uh, a social archive. You know there are actually quite a few models that we looked at before we launched our project, and they include um, a foundation based in Torrance called the Go for Broke Foundation. And they run a successful oral history program called Hanashi, which translates to talk story. And the, so the Hanashi oral history program has collected over, I believe, over a thousand uh, video interviews of World War II Japanese American veterans. So wow. this has really been, and, and they're digitizing it, and this has really been the model for us in terms of um, going after the stories that we need as well. Um, and it's certainly a very pressing and urgent matter as we see a lot of the first generation passing. Yes. I have one really good example of Please. that, actually. exactly what we wanted. And this is also speaking to the potential of collaboration among the university and the community. Is um, I partner with a grassroots organization called the Vietnamese American Heritage Foundation. And they're based in Texas, and they've gone about the country collecting over 500 oral history interviews of Vietnamese Americans. So several years back, they came to Southern California, and they collected uh, something like 70 or 80 interviews here, but they haven't been able to process it, meaning transcribe, digitize, put it online, make it accessible. So that's where we stepped in. We saw the potential to collaborate with this group and get their interviews. So shortly before our October 24th uh, website launch event in the community, um, in Westminster, right? In Westminster, California, one of um, the, the... president of the VAHF, sent me an interview with um, a dissident poet named Wing Chi Ting. And he was somebody who is, I mean, the, the Economist, the New York Times, um, have, has written extensively about recently because he passed away on October 2nd Uh-oh. of this year. Um, he was in his late 70s. And he, he was somebody who was in prison for something like 26, 27 years for his um, 
dissident poetry um, and had, you know, in Vietnam. And since relocating to Santa Ana, California, he's, li- he's lived quite a quiet life. But, um, you know, he's been interviewed and written about here and there, but it wasn't until the oral history interview where you have a whole two hours of his, you know, his words, his, his narrative. And so we helped to get the, his interview online. Oh, less. We translated the transcription that had already been done. So now, Wing Ting's interview is on our website, um, the video interview. And it's, it's all in Vietnamese? His, his interview is in Vietnamese, but there is a translated transcript okay. in English. So well, the poetry can... will be lost on us, unfortunately. Um, it's just, it's untranslatable in my mind, but, um, but, I, uh, but we will get the essence from what was uh, uh, translated in his, his own narration, I'm hoping. Yeah, actually, many of his works of poetry are, have been translated into English. Successfully? So, um, you know, <laughs> that it's really hard. is up to, the, uh, up to the person judging it. I, uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not as familiar with his poetry, but they are, the English translation is quite moving as well. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Well, we've talked a little bit as we're wrapping up about uh, the various people that are participating in this project and the students that you've trained. I understand, though, Tui, you're looking for a broader range of demographics to be on the story-taking end so that you can match the narrators with peers taking their stories so it may, in fact, elicit a more and a deeper level of communication uh, for an even better archival yes. stock. Yes, Yes, absolutely. One of my uh, hopes is that uh, through you know, media exposure, and thank you so much for this opportunity to be on the show, thank we can you. get the word out and we can recruit more volunteers um, to interview to help collect these stories. Because it's, you know, it's great to have the students and as they're becoming interested in the process and history making. Um, I also see the value in having some older narrators connect with their peers. So it would be great to, to get you know, volunteers involved um, in this effort, because I really believe that this is a public archive that will be useful to everyone, not just to Vietnamese Americans, but it will really enrich um, American history as well. Absolutely. I can just see on so many levels, Tui, how, uh, uh, let's say, a senior uh, engaging uh, the narrator could, would have so many more cues, prompts, I should say, to um, elicit that material. And I'm I'm really hoping that you're uh, project is successful in reaching out. I mean, you're having not just to recruit the narrators, but recruiting more uh, story takers so that um, the the best possible kind of archive is put together here. And I wish you a very uh, open-ended kind of term with this project so that um, we can all, we can learn the stories, we can learn how to engage others in our midst in a less formal way and take their stories too, whether it's Thanksgiving this year, whether it's at a bus stop or it's in a line at a grocery store that there is, I I think there's always, there's, we've talked a little bit about interaction with my earlier guest about reading body language, but, but stories, the oral tradition is, could be any time and any place. And this, this formal um, project is, is a, a remarkable endeavor, and I'm, I'm just trying to use this as an example, saying, and there's informal ways of doing this too, folks. Yes, absolutely. Everybody has a story to share, and I think we all um, should really tap into our listening skills as we look around us in the everyday experiences. 
Well, I really thank you for coming to us today. And I want to make sure the website, it's, uh, there's a, a, the blog is uh, a part of that. But you were talking about the, uh, it's the UCI site. I have it here. I'm just trying to find where I've, um, it's the uh, VO, let's see. Remind us exactly. It's, it's the um, the official website where you can v- go on and hear this, these oral histories and read them. Are v a o h p v a o h p dot l i b okay dot u c i dot e d u okay, and we'll put that on the podcast so uh, people can go back to that. Uh, your show's on three thirty on Monday afternoons on VNCR one hundred six point three FM. Uh, and uh, played, as you said, other times of the day so people can take a, take a listen to that. Well, I thank you so much for being on our show today, and I wish you a lovely immigrant holiday of Thanksgiving with you and uh, yours, and um, we'll stay tuned with uh, other riches that you may have to report in at a later date. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia, and happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy well. Thanksgiving. folks. That's the end of this show today. I want to thank you for joining me. We are, um, I want to thank you and um, I want to welcome your comments on what you'd like covered up into the holiday season. My email is cshambaugh, that's C-S-H-A-M-B-A-U-G-H at KUCI.org. Here's wishing you a meaningful, a festive, a reflective Thanksgiving. I'm grateful to you for listening to this program. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next week. Up next is George Rosales with George Hat. Thanks for listening.